All right, my time is a little shorter this morning, and I'm going to do the best I can to unpack what I feel the Lord has given to me. Can I take you to the Word of the Lord this morning? All right. It's going to take me a minute to get there, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. <clears throat> and I'll be there with you in just a second, but I, follow me here as I, as I lead us to that point. In theology, we refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospel. Say that with me, synoptic. It simply means that these three of the four gospels have a distinctive harmony to them. Um, if you were to lay them on top of each other, you would see the similarities, particularly with time frames and the way the parables are told. Certain nuances uh, may vary here and there, but those nuances don't really particularly change the timelines of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. But there's one more gospel, and that's the book of the Gospel of John, which is an entirely different animal. It, it's structured differently. For example, the Gospel of John will spend half of the book on the final week of the life of Jesus. Almost 15 chapters of John are spent on the last seven days of Christ. So you can't really project or um, overlay John on top of the other three Gospels because it deals with the life of Jesus in a, a much different way. And it's because of that I want to point out something to you that is going to be the basis of the word I want to bring to you today, because there is one incident in particular that I want to, I want to uh, draw your attention to this morning. In the Synoptic Gospels, which is what? Okay, good morning, good morning. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they take the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple when Jesus walks into the temple after riding into Jerusalem. And they, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place those accounts later in each of the, the synoptic gospels. They have them positioned later. The Bible says, and you know it, you've read it, that he walks, Jesus walks into the temple, he turns over the tables, he throws out the money changers, and thereafter you see the further unfolding of Passion Week take place. But something distinctive happens in the Gospel of John that is not expressed the same way in the synoptics. In the synoptics, those accounts that I'm just referring to, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, they are given in Matthew 21 and in Mark 11 and in Luke 19. However, it is very interesting to note that in John's gospel, he takes the cleansing of the temple and he places it at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Literally, it starts in John chapter 2. The others, much later. The three synoptics, it's much later. John chapter 2. In John, the opening of the ministry of Jesus starts. His ministry starts with the cleansing of the temple. Jesus walks into the temple, flips over the tables, and clearly makes the announcement that my Father's house shall be called the house of prayer. And with that, he throws the money changers out of the temple. Now, most scholars then conclude, and the arguments are very strong for the fact that the cleansing of the temple did not happen once, but it happened twice. 
therewith making the account as noted in the synoptics as well as in the Gospel of John all correct with regard to their timeline. The point I would have us see this morning is that Jesus cleansed the temple in the early part of his ministry according to John's Gospel, and yet I find it amazing that just three years later, toward the end of his three-year ministry, he has to show up again and do the very same thing again, cleanse the temple again according to the synoptics. Three years later, the very reason why he had to flip over the tables and throw money changers out of the temple, whatever the reason is, all of that, it has shown up again. So in other words, hear me today, the thing you got rid of, the thing you flipped over, the thing you removed all of a sudden has found its way right back into the temple. I think there's something we should look at here and apply to our own lives because this principle is not uncommon. I believe you and I need to watch carefully to stand guard against those things from which we have been cleansed, those things from which we have been delivered. Those things that still have the propensity to try to creep their way back into our life all the while knowing that God has at one time dealt with the matter in us, but he is still there to cleanse us and purify us. And yet because of the propensity for something to return, the Lord has to go after them again within us. Amen, Dan. Great preaching. Now, let me give you my best example from the Old Testament. I join you now at 1 Samuel 28. And I'm going to pull this all together as quickly as I can. 1 Samuel 28, it is the ending of the life of Saul. And here's what we read starting in verse 3. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul, who had removed from the land those who were mediums and spirit, spiritists, some versions literally say witches, so the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. Urim, there's little stones that the high priest kept in some device. They would look, the stones, uh, it would almost be like flipping a coin. It was the way sometimes they determined the will of the Lord. And they were kept in the ephod, and uh, in the breastplate of the high priest. And they were often used to try to help them determine the will of the Lord. So Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Hello. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium, there is a woman who is a witch at Endor. Verse 3 that we just read, Saul removed all the mediums. Verse 7, Saul asked for a medium. Are you with me? Verse 3, Saul gets rid of all the witches. Verse 7, he's asking for the witch to come back. The title of my message this morning is, She's Back. 
Now, I will bounce a bit from the Old Testament I've just given you in, in Samuel to the New Testament, uh, what we talked about, Jesus cleansing the temple. Old Testament. The very thing that Saul kicks out is what he's asked to come back. He kicked it out, and then he's asked, what, four verses later for it to come back? New Testament. The very money changers that Jesus throws out of the temple find their way back into the temple. And since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I have no reason to believe that the enemy of our soul is going to treat us any differently than he did the physical temple. In fact, I'm confident he will do everything possible to find his way back into any area of our lives. How many know it's true? Stuff we throw out in an effort to please God and to be like him we will find his way back in us when we are unguarded. Point number one, battles tell us more about ourselves than church services do. <clears throat> Any kind of an amen in the room to that? <clears throat> How wonderful it is to walk into Bethesda on any Sunday morning and to feel the very presence of God. I know we all love it and enjoy it. How often I'm told that people who walk in for the first time, I hear this, constantly. People walk in for the first time and they just weep through most of the service. And I think uh, if we had such a thing as a praise meter in this place, I believe most Sundays it would be off the charts. <clears throat> but maybe you're like me. Once we leave this place, don't you sometimes just wish, because <clears throat> you get in here and you, uh, you get in your car and you take off and you're facing real life again, don't you sometimes wish that the band and the choir and the singers could come with you? Wouldn't it be nice? I am often asked to officiate other kinds of services and events like weddings and funerals and receptions and dinners and so forth. And whoever's hosting the event will, will sometimes say to me, now we want it to be this event, we want it to be a worship service just like we have at Bethesda on Sunday morning. Okay. And I understand what they're saying. They want the atmosphere. They want what's created by the incredible uh, presence of the Holy Spirit through the gifted, talented people in this place. They want to feel the same thing they feel when they come in here on Sunday morning at this event that they're planning. But honestly, that's often very difficult to replicate in another situation because this may come as a surprise to you, but I don't carry the band, the choir, and the singers in my back pocket. Don't you wish you could, though? Take them with you. Wouldn't it be nice if we had them all in a little box? We could take them to work or school or wherever we go, and when things get rough or, or when the day just doesn't go well and, and we didn't need a little boost, we could just open that box and say, hit it! Wouldn't that be nice? But that's not our reality. Our reality is that once we walk out of this place, it reveals more about us than anything else. I have a confession to make to you this morning. There's something that I deliberately do not do. I do not put Jesus stickers on my car. It's because I know how I drive. <clears throat> now come on, let's be honest. A fish on your bumper does not sanctify your soul. You can have a fish tattooed on your arm. You can have your hairstylist shave out a little place in your hair in the shape of a fish or a cross, and that's not going to change you either. Because for me, it can often happen like this. Very vulnerable moment here for me. I'm late for a service to get here. I'm late for an appointment to get here. 
I'm peeling off of 820 to get on a beach street, but I'm in the far outside lane. I need to quickly get over into the inside lane, but there's somebody in a car there that will not let me in to the inside lane. It's getting later and later. And so I get up closer and closer, and finally the temptation is I want to go, ah! <laughs> Only discover that it's one of our faithful church members. <laughs> Happens every time. So I've gotten very good at quickly turning, and the hallelujah, hallelujah, <laughs> listening to praise music. But you know what, Bethesda? I find it's true. These hands can be lifted in praise that can be lifted in praise can also be lifted for other purposes as well. So how does that happen? Well, James says it can happen with the tongue. James says this tongue can be like a, a spring that bubbles out both fresh water and bitter water. Then he says, but this should not be, brethren. Should not be. The same hands that can worship, the same hands that can play an instrument, the same hands that can pass an offering bag, the same hands that can hold choir music in rehearsal on Wednesday night are the same hands that can curse instead of bless. And at some point, I, begin, I, 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 I know we have to realize I begin to realize, God, this one hand reveals more about me often than these two hands being raised to you. And it happens to all of us. And you know what? It doesn't matter what you have in front of your name. You can have reverend in front of your name. You can have pastor in front of your name. You can have elder deacon in front of your name. You can have choir member in front of your name. You can have Bethesda, whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But you will find out that every one of us who can do this with two hands can so easily go, ah, to somebody else. Now, I realize my illustration is a, is a, is a gross oversimplification. But it does begin to demonstrate one easy way that the enemy can say to us, I want back in. I want back in. I want back in the temple. Church, we must recognize in this day and age, we need the Lord 24-7. We need the Lord more today than we have ever needed him before. The enemy is after us to fight us, to get into way, in ways, even things we thought we've conquered, things we thought we had the victory over, can come back in in a flash if we are unguarded. And you can apply my silly hand illustration to whatever part of your life for which it is, for which it is appropriate. But because we must remember that the Bible says in Isaiah 54 that no weapon formed against us shall. Does not mean that a weapon shall not be formed against you. But it is a declaration that the weapon formed against you does not have to prosper. That ought to get a hallelujah this morning. For without a doubt, there is no doubt about it, the enemy knows how to come against us. Point number two, the enemy forms weapons. Formed is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it is yesar, yesar, which means to fashion or to customize. In other words, that which may be a battle for you is not necessarily a battle for me. And that which is a battle for me may not necessarily be a battle for you because he has yasar. He has custom design, custom fit, that for which he's going to come after you with. For Saul, it was a Philistine that kept coming and coming and coming. And whenever they showed up, all the way back to David and Goliath, 
When that Philistine showed up, Saul was falling apart in fear. Fear was his nemesis. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 17 that fear hit Saul then, greatly dismayed and greatly afraid. And a decade later, in chapter 28, Saul is still falling apart and greatly afraid. And the enemy knew, fear, that's my inroad into Saul's life. If I show up with a Philistine, he's going to fall apart and crumble completely. And in much the same way to us, the enemy knows if he shows up with a certain pain in your body, a certain bruise that won't heal, immediately it's a Philistine to us saying that we have cancer or we have some disease. Or a fear about your marriage that begins to enter your mind, which could be triggered easily by a thought that says, you know, everyone in my family is divorced. My grandparents, my parents, my siblings, everybody. Surely that's my plight as well. I'm going to lose this marriage. It's your Philistine that's coming after you. And the enemy knows how to custom design a weapon specifically formed against you. He knows just what it takes to put you in the very place where the money changers are worming their way back in. My reference back to the New Testament. For Saul, it was fear. He didn't get his answers from a dream. He didn't get the answer he was looking for from the Urim stones. He didn't get his answer from a prophet. So he got scared. Scared enough to cause him to ask a witch, a medium, to come right back into his life. A witch! And here we see the very thing he had deliberately moved out of his life. He's asking it back in. Why? Because the enemy knows how to customize his weapon on you. Sometimes we think every battle is the same for everyone and we know it's not. I have many friends who struggle with alcohol. <clears throat> it can easily get a grip on them. Alcohol has never been an issue for me. I assume you're glad for that since I'm your pastor, probably. I have no taste for it, no desire for it. It's just not there. Sweets, on the other hand, is quite a problem in my life. <clears throat> in fact, most carbohydrates are a problem for me. <clears throat> I've always believed that there was no problem I could face that a good bag of chips could not solve one way or another. <clears throat> Anybody with me this morning? The point is this, and please don't flood my office with bags of chips after I say that, please. No, 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 no. <clears throat> the enemy knows exactly where the weak spot is in you. And he meticulously forms, he meticulously fashions and customizes the weapon that he wants to use to come in and destroy you. And he knows just what it takes to bring it to you, whether it's fear or doubt or depression. I know that there are many in this congregation who battle the spirit of suicide. We just heard a testimony this past Wednesday night in the choir rehearsal of how God has delivered a young choir member of suicidal thoughts. She very, very bravely told us. For a long time, though outwardly everything looked great, happy-go-lucky, fun-loving, inwardly she battled all the thoughts that go along with believing that everyone in her life, as she said it, would be better off if she was gone. I want you to know I'm praying for her because I'm praying for her that the enemy will not find his way back into that temple. 
she reached a place this last year. In fact, I think she said it was when people in songs were here in that service. She reached a point of incredible deliverance. She'd felt that thing leaving her, that spirit of suicide leaving her. <clears throat> and I'm praying. I'm praying that even it is, as it has left her, because of the propensity for the money changers to come back, that if that thing comes back, she will have the strength and wherewithal to flip over the tables and to drive out the money changers once again. I'm praying God will give her that strength in the name of Jesus. But church, please remember with me this morning, though those weapons formed against us, custom designed for you, fashioned just for you by the enemy, even though they are formed against you, hallelujah, they don't have to prosper against you. Thanks be to God forever. That's the joy we have in Christ Jesus. And here's the final point before we're going to pray this morning. <clears throat> when we look at our passage that I've read to you, it just seems like the same test comes again and again and again. Is that true for anybody in the room today? It was certainly true for Saul. And I would guess that most of us Probably all of us in this room feel like I'm dealing with the same thing over and over and over again. Which brings me to this. I don't really think it is Goliath that got David to the throne. I find it interesting that he slays a giant in 1 Samuel 17. And in our culture, David would be the next king right after knocking Goliath down because we love heroes in our culture. But just because Goliath goes down, it's as if God seems to say, nope, um, that's great. You knocked out a giant. But now here's the path for you ahead from here. You're going to have to deal 13 years. You're going to have to deal with something much worse than, than slaying Goliath. You're going to deal with a demonic boss for the next 13 years of your life. His name is Saul. He'll be throwing spears at you. He'll hire 2,000 men to kill you. You're going to have to run for your life every day. And what God is saying to David is that he wants to see what goes on in David's life every single day over a period of time. It wasn't the one-time event with great victory that got him the throne. He had to begin to look at what was happening over a period of time. One giant down does not necessarily qualify you for a throne. But to get the victory in your battle every single day that you have to get up and face it again and again and again, the days you feel like it, the days that you don't, and over a period of time, that's what begins to open the door for you because that's the way God does it. Maybe you have conquered a giant. Maybe you have kicked drugs. Maybe you've gotten rid of alcohol. That is all fantastic. It should be celebrated today. But don't go get a website just yet. Don't go print your calling cards for your ministry just yet because Goliath being knocked down is simply an indication that it's all just starting for you. It's the next period of time where you deal with Saul every single day. That's what God's going to observe in you. Be encouraged today, my child. When I'm frustrated with my own life, I'm often drawn to Mark chapter 6. It's those times where I feel like I'm, I'm facing the same battle day after day after day. It's like I, I feel like I get some revelation 
from the Lord about something, and, and, and then I, I, I have to face it all again shortly thereafter. But I can get encouraged when I read that the disciples have their own problems, and I see that I'm in good company. And, it's, and it can be a comfort to me to see what they went through. You remember the story where the bread and the fish are multiplied to, to feed the crowds of people. Five loaves of bread and two fish is what they had to feed 5,000 people. Now follow me quickly here, Mark chapter 6. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it is already, it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them and said, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the, on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and he broke, by the way, he blessed that which was not enough, hello. He blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and then they picked up 12 uh, full baskets of the, of the broken pieces and also the fish. What an incredible day that was. There were 5,000 men. Men alone, plus women and children, who ate the loaves. And we see that, and it's easy for us to say, God, you are truly a miracle worker. Anybody would have said that on that day. Wouldn't you think the disciples would be saying, that's all I need to be confident going forward. I'm convinced he's the man. Anytime I'm in trouble, five loaves, two fish, it's going to happen. Let me take you down the road to two chapters. Chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In those days... When there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days. This is two chapters later. And have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him and said, Jesus, you did it in chapter 6. You can do it again. You are the bread maker and the fish multiplier, and surely if you did it before, then our God can certainly do it again. Is that what your Bible says? Look what they had the audacity to say to him. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Church, I've got to tell you, I read that and I go, am I missing something here? If I was Jesus, verse 5 would have gone something like this. Are you kidding me? You can't be serious. Did you not see what we just did two chapters ago with less people than are here to, with more people than are here today? But look how he responded to them in verse 5. Now we typically read the Bible with plenty of pomp and circumstance, but I'm just going to tell you, in my mind it reads like this. This is Jesus, and he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Can I just say that it's just a blessing to me that there are other people besides me who blow it, like the disciples. There are other people who have weapons customized for them which cause them to lose faith and lose hope and not be sure what all God can do. But the, the wonderful news in all of this is our God is so patient with us. 
I don't think the way I just read it to you is the way Jesus said it because he's so patient and kind. He essentially says to us, I'll keep giving you loaves and fish opportunities until you get the story right. Why? Because he's committed to our growth. He's committed to our victory. He's committed to us leaving this place today saying, I don't care how many loaves and fish we hand him. I don't care how inadequate the resource is that I have to hand him to work with. He's going to be enough every time. He's always enough. In fact, he's more than enough. Probably the author that I reference the most often is C.S. Lewis. I'm a fan. The Narnia books are favorites, but the standout for me is probably his little allegory called The Great Divorce. It's 100 pages of Lewis doing his own style of a bus ride from hell to heaven. And in the bus ride, he wants to show that people that are in hell don't want to be in heaven. They don't want to be in the presence of glory. They don't want to be in the presence of purity. It's uh, very vintage Lewis, those of you who are familiar with his writing, as he shows this bus ride and he's finishing the last two chapters where all the people from hell who took the bus ride to heaven are all getting back on the bus in this allegory. There is this one man who was getting back on the bus and this particular man had this demonic figure on his shoulder. I think they all did, all the people on the bus. And as he's getting on the bus, a Christ-like figure, Jesus figure, looks at the man and he says, I can take that from you. And as the man looks at this Jesus figure, he says, no, 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 it's, it's okay, I'm good. I, I'm really fine. I, I just need to get back on the bus. And the Jesus figure reaches out again and says, let me take that from you. And this goes on for a minute, and finally the, the demon started talking. The demon started saying, I'll be good. I won't say a word. The Christ figure says to the man again, Let me take that from you. And the demon spoke to the man and said, don't let him do it. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And the man responds the same way that he has been responding. No, 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 no. I'm just going to go get on my seat on the bus. The final time the Christ figure says, let me take that from you. And he grabbed the demonic figure, pulled it off the man's shoulder, The man just stood there allowing Jesus to pull that thing off. And the story goes, when Jesus took it, he threw it to the ground. There was smoke and screams and dust flying. When suddenly the demonic figure turned into this beautiful white stallion. And Lewis writes that instead of a man getting on a bus riding back into hell, he rode on a beautiful white stallion into the presence of God. Bethesda, I have to tell you something here. Some of you feel like you face that witch every single day, and it keeps coming and coming and coming. And possibly you've experienced the cleansing of Christ, but it's also possible that something has found its way back into the temple. And you say, God, I'm getting tired of fighting this. But just like we saw in the book of C.S. Lewis, he can take that from you. And instead of getting on a bus ride, a train ride, or a plane, or a car ride back into hell, God says this can be a day of deliverance that you can leave in the presence of God. I cannot promise that it won't try to come back, whatever it is that you're fighting, but I can promise you this, he whom the Son sets free is free 
indeed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so I have a simple question as we bring this service to a close. And please, please uh, stay with us just for a couple more minutes. I want to know who am I praying for today? Because obviously, uh, and I get asked often, how do you choose the title and topic for whatever you're going to speak on? It's usually either something I'm grappling with in my own heart or questions in my own mind, things that I'm dealing with. But certainly today, my heart is for those of you who've known what it is to experience the cleansing power of Jesus, but something has found its way back, and Christ is coming to be to flip the tables and to throw out the money changers again. You've known what it is to be cleansed. You've had him cleanse your temple, but somehow it's coming back. Or possibly, maybe it's happened because you've even invited the witch back in, dare I say it. But you're tired of this ride, and you're ready for deliverance today. And you're ready to say from this moment forward, I want to walk in victory over this thing. Whatever that is for you. Because whatever weapon that has been formed against you has been distinctive for you. And it doesn't matter what it is. If that's you, and you want prayer today, would you just quickly stand to your feet and let me pray. Who is it? Stand to your feet. Congregation, would you just stretch your hand toward those that are standing? I'm reminded this morning, our Father, that we have your promise that your grace is sufficient for every need. I'm reminded also how strong your heart is, moved with compassion for your people. We can't even possibly comprehend the depth of your love, but yet you give and give and give and give again to us. So I pray for those who are brave enough to stand today, say, I've been through this battle more than once, maybe more than twice, maybe many, many times. But God, today I'm asking for a from this moment forward moment. I'm asking God that you will, this will be the last time you've had to come in and drive out the money changers and flip over the tables and say, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So Lord, we thank you for your delivering power. Thank you for your cleansing power. And we believe that you who have begun the good work, you are going to complete it even unto the day of Christ. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray the prayer of faith today, believing you will drive out that which needs to be driven out, that you will give victory today, that as these folks go from this place, they will know that they are going with their heart lifted and their heart lighter because you have done a great work. Lord, let your deliverance come today. And we give you thanks for it in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said, amen.